is a poem that I like very much that I've shared here many times. It's called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great, crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, We're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or... Look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. The reason I chose this passage tonight is because I wanted to point to an inevitable process that one goes through as we awaken our consciousness. We move from what you could call the narrow uh, vortex, the narrow gravitational field of me and mine and my situation and my drama and my feelings and me, 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 my, my, my. I often add to that, oi, oi, oi. And we move from that narrow gravitational field, that, that, uh, that vortex, that, that very um, tightly wound, anxiety-ridden, tension, maniacal, crazy mind world of me and mine to this wider gravitational field of of the Dharma, of things as they are, of perspective, of, of spaciousness, of compassion, having enough room to look around at our fellow bugs and say, hey, how you doing? Nice bowl. Not just being able to somehow see that we're all in this together and that uh, I may be in a difficult state, but there are many people in difficult states. I may have this issue, but... So many people, this is a universal issue. Everybody has 83 problems. Everyone. It's not just me. So the direction of our practice is a widening of our circle of understanding. Yet we do, that widening happens through the uh, the development of mindful attention and loving kindness happens through First and foremost, opening to all of the th- all of the tendencies of mind, all of the habits, all of the the sufferings that we experience, the especially the mental suffering. It it happens through the crucible, you could say, of of uh, ill will, anger, frustration, of longing, of wanting, of of agitation, of anxiety, of dullness, of, of doubt. And it's the use of these common mental states, these, these what are so-called defilements that, that make our life feel really hard to bear, 
the the inner life that has something to do with the outer circumstances, but it has more to do with the patterns of mind, the way that we relate and react to things. It's putting, it's shedding a light on these different mental states, and then consequently those mental states become, once they are brought into that light of awareness, they become the cause of our uh, of our awakening, of our widening of our view. In fact, the widening of our heart and the, the awakening of the heart of compassion. Tonight I thought that I would put a little bit of light, not on all the different hindrances, different difficult mental states, and the five traditional mental states that seem to oppose the awakening of consciousness when they go unnoticed, but are used for awakening once they are noticed. The five common mental states are the, the wanting mind, the mind that's in a, in a pretty continual or very frequent state of wanting some kind of pleasure, of like and all the things that come with that, liking, craving, but mostly the wanting mind in all the ways that expresses itself. Any of you live at all with the wanting mind? It, do you ever want what you don't have? So uh, since it's so universal, we don't need to talk about that so much tonight. We've all seen the fruits of, of as Bo Lozoff always says, of trying to keep up with the Joneses, try to, trying to fill our, to have everything that we think we need to have and what everybody else has or even more. And he, the way he puts it, he says, it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy <laughs> and just relinquish the, the cause of so much suffering, of trying to keep up, trying to get, get ahead, get, get enough or get more than we actually need. It's much more uh, what we want. So this wanting mind keeps us in a state of dissatisfaction, but the flip side of the wanting mind, the reverse side of craving, is the aversive mind, the mind that wants to, that reacts with ill will or um, resistance or rejection of something, a person, a situation, and it's often this mental state, this hindrance of ill will. I actually brought along a, a few words to express the, some of the different flavors of ill will, and I think you'll recognize them as they may have shown up in your life from time to time. Irritation, any of you? Frustration, anger, fear, boredom, resentment, hatred, antagonism. Anxiety and tension, often has some resistance involved. Sometimes it forms in our, in our thought world or our mental world as the complaining mind, the judging mind, the condemning mind, the shaming mind. Negative evaluations of, of objects, so the evaluating mind, the negative evaluations, and all, all aversion to... Uh, individuals or situations. This is the aversive mind. And the aversive mind, very easily, especially when it goes unnoticed, unrecognized as a mental state, 
it colors our perception in such a way that we think that in order for me to find any sense of relief, the situation, the person, the object has got to go or got to change, got to be different than the way it is. And this puts us all into a state, whenever this mind state is present and not noticed, it puts us into a state, just like the wanting mind does, of suspended well-being. A sense of, of, uh, of I can't be happy. My happy is conditioned upon, conditional, conditioned upon things turning out the way that I want them to. In this case, it's getting rid of something. And the reason I brought this up is because for the last several months, I've been reading a infra- relatively regular but not every week blog that a friend of mine has been sharing of her experience of working for the last several months in Kabul, Afghanistan, where she's living now. She's working for a Canadian uh, aid organization associated with the Canadian government, working with people who are disabled and uh, widows, people affected by war and by untold kinds of suffering. And her blog has painted such a clear picture of the painful situation that so many people and the challenging situation that so many people live in there. And remarkably, in spite of it being filled with unpleasantness in so many cases, people managed to somehow find their composure. And I brought a little passage from her blog that I thought would be interesting for us to reflect on in the face of our own situations and the way that we, that we relate to our own unpleasantness. This is just a little piece that I cut out. On my way home, I made a stop at Finest, which is a little, I guess it's a little neighborhood market. Stop at Finest to purchase water and groceries. And yet again, when I returned home, there was no electricity. In fact, there was no power until 3 p.m. the next day. Thankfully, I had purchased two candles a few days earlier. I will now always carry my passport on me, along with enough cash to leave the country directly if needed. I also plan to purchase a used burqa in case I need to go in in incognito on short notice. Living with the privilege I do, that is, I can leave the country and return to Canada, means that this incident fades quickly into the recesses of my mind. I've been told this is not the case for some of my Afghan colleagues, particularly those involved with the government and our or international colleagues. And still, when I left my office, although the streets were largely deserted, laughter and day-to-day life carried on. Once again, a testament to Afghan courage and resiliency, which is a necessity living here. Actually, a testament to the ability of human beings to carry on with life in the face of huge and sustained suffering. Unbelievable, really. We in the West live amidst such a different reality. I'm constantly struck at how I get myself into a knot about small things 
when Afghans are stoic in the face of huge loss and uncertainty. I feel my mindfulness practice is taking on a whole new level of meaning here. In Afghanistan, my gratitude is profound, except perhaps when my frustration exceeds my ability to step back and get some perspective, and still I see slow, steady progress. And she doesn't really, in this one, paint as graphic a picture as she does in some of the situation in Afghanistan. But clearly she's faced with what is the springboard in every case to, the, uh, to ill will, to the aversive mind when it comes up. And that is unpleasant experience. Every single one of us, if we are born into this life, we experience a measure of pleasant and unpleasant. One gives way to the other. These are the winds of, uh, these are two of the worldly winds. If you don't have both of these, you're not one of us. That's how it is. And we also have gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame. We have all these winds that blow through our lives. But especially whatever it is that's experienced with a feeling tone of unpleasantness. This is what needs to be uh, attended to. We need to learn, this is what the Buddha suggested anyway, we need to learn to guard our senses. That means to bring attention to the immediate sense experience that we're having. So anyone right now as you're sitting here tonight experiencing some unpleasant feeling tone, is there... Is it physical or is it mental? Okay, so there's some unpleasantness. Now, if you're experiencing some unpleasantness, and if you don't feel it right now, you may try it when you get home or the next hour, the next hour. At some point, unpleasantness will arise. Now, if unpleasantness is felt, if we're able to just feel the unpleasantness associated with some one of our sense experiences, something that we see, something that we hear, something we smell, something we taste, something we feel with our body, or even a thought, if we're able to notice the moment that we experience something, it will always come with a valence, with some kind of feeling tone of either pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. But a large percentage of those sense experiences are come accompanied quite spontaneously, quite um, selflessly, they arise with an unpleasant feeling tone. If we can, I like to think of it as backing up, if we can back up a little, get a little bit closer to the direct experience of whatever it is that's happening, And as close as we can get to simply feeling whatever is unpleasant, just feel it as unpleasant. Sense what unpleasant is like. Don't add anything to it. Don't think about where it came from for a moment. Don't think about what has to happen next. Just feel the unpleasantness. Now, if we're able to guard our senses in this way, be able to... In fact, protect ourselves from resistance to the unpleasant. Because that's really what triggers 
uh, all the different proliferating forms of aversion, is resistant to the unpleasant. So if we can feel the unpleasantness, it's just unpleasant. It's not the end of the world, a moment of unpleasantness. It's totally workable. It's totally livable, survivable, unpleasant. What's harder to survive is resistance to unpleasantness. And all the, the compounding reactions to that, to that initial disliking and resistance, because it often hardens into addictive patterns of irritation, frustration, anger, fear, boredom, resentment, hatred, antagonism, anxiety, tension, complaining, judging, condemning, etc., etc. In the event that you can't catch it at the moment of unpleasantness, because if you do, you will cut the chain and it won't, won't lead onward into more proliferation of, su- of mental suffering. It's just unpleasant. Everyone can handle that. No matter how bad your situation, in a moment you can just feel unpleasant. And you may, if you pay close attention, you may see that a glimmer of space enters your heart and mind where you thought that your situation was absolute and impossible. All of a sudden, it's, for that moment, just unpleasant. But sometimes we can't, uh, our, the reactivity or resistance is so strong that we're immediately in our uh, complaining. And it's in those moments that we have to learn somehow to widen our view, to widen, to be able to look around, not just see our fellow bugs, but look from a wider view at what the state of our heart and mind is at that moment. To be able to recognize, oh, this is the complaining mind. This is the judging mind. This is the condemning mind. This is frustration. This is anger. This is murderous rage. And be able to to navigate the world of different uh, of moods and emotions, the different mental states that go with with that uh, that seem to spawn from unpleasantness. So, for me, reading this blog from my friend Margot instantaneously called me to attention to the ways both in my recent past and also since I've read this blog, the ways that in my immediate present, my generally immediate present, the ways that I am, uh, how I'm dealing with the unpleasantness that presents itself in my mind, in my body, in my life, in my situation. And I've noticed that when I'm caught in the the narrow vortex of, of me and mine and in a very narrow world of my unique situation, which I respect. Everybody has a unique situation, and it's, easy, it's very human nature to become self-absorbed. And we do have to attend to a lot of our individual issues alone. So it's natural that we, and we also live in a kind of individualistic culture, so we can often feel like we're 
we don't uh, like we are that wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. We're alone, apart, and that increases our sense of of being in that little narrow vortex. But I've been noticing that lately, noticing how the those little things that she was talking about in her blog that we can develop a major reaction to, I've been noticing how um, how quickly move from unpleasantness to to uh, to heavy aversion and frustration and and the good news about beginning to make that shift from being just caught in this to noticing it is all of a sudden there's room, there's space. Oh, there, that's just my complaining mind. Look at, how, look at how big a reaction I'm getting into over somebody parking a little bit too close to my line. I used to tell a story in classes about and it really, for a while, I was really working with aversion a lot because I could easily fly off being a, a greed type. The flip, flip side of a greed type is when things don't go your way, you, you get very intense aversion. So greed and aversion are very closely, they're good friends. But I remember one day when I was, I drove into the place that I regularly swim laps and somebody had, and I, there were, the place was packed, and I went to the farthest corner of the parking lot, and somebody had taken up two parking places. And I went into this. I felt the unpleasantness of the reaction, of seeing that. And it very much offended my view of how people should comport themselves in a parking lot. But it didn't stop there. I went into this diatribe in my mind and just got so overreactive to the f- fact that somebody took up two parking places. And of course, I don't think people should park that way. But I realized in a moment, that person just parked that way, and I am suffering. <laughs> I was a mental case. And it didn't have much to do with their parking. It had to do with how I handled their parking. And they didn't cause me to feel the way I did. They were related to my situation or my, my inner reaction. But that's about it. They did what they did, and I'm miserable. And they may have done that with the intention of, of having me react that way. I don't know. <laughs> At the time, I was certain of it. <laughs> But when I widened my view, was able to see the madness of my own reaction, the madness of the, and the pain of, of having aversion or that resistance to a situation proliferate into such ill will, such anger, I felt a kind of compassion for myself, how easily I can be triggered. I got triggered so many times by, by policemen, and I know I've told the stories countless times here, and uh, the things, the names that I've called policemen in what could have been civil interactions. I should have been, I should be in jail by now. <laughs> but I couldn't handle unpleasantness. 
I would so quickly move into that resistance would move into rage. And it was pretty, for the most part, that level of ill will was because that my identity view that had gotten so, my view of myself that had gotten so identified and fixated on uh, how things should be and how people should be and how the world should be. And so views and opinions, so much identity around that. And as the Buddha said that ill will gets spawned for two general reasons, frustrated desire and wounded pride. And in each case where my view of myself is threatened, of how the world should be, I, we, I start to feel vulnerable. I start to feel that I'm not... It, it isn't... The world that I've constructed as the ideal doesn't really hold up. And rather than feel the groundlessness of, of that view crumbling, I get angrier, get more and more frustrated, and then rail in my mind and project all of it onto the, uh, the politicians, the policemen in this case, the, the person who drives the car. Had I, in those moments, been able to notice, this is unpleasant, <laughs> or this is anger, this is ill will, been able to ride that, that, uh, that bull, that, that bucking bronco, able to begin to accommodate that, that disturbance that no one else could cause. Even though my, the proliferation of my thoughts would be, make a convincing case for the prosecution against everyone and everything that, was, that caused me to be the, feel the way that I do. Nobody has ever caused me to feel the way I do. They are related to how I feel. But what has caused me to feel the way I do, are, are common reactions that we all have to the unpleasant. Starting with disliking, following up with, um, with uh, wanting to get rid of, following up in whatever form, complaining, judging, condemning, and as long as I'm living in that little internal world of how the world and how people and how a situation should be different, I am hostage. I am, I am in a place of suspended well-being, and uh, I've disconnected from. I've gotten disconnected from myself. Got disconnected from the immediate felt experience of unpleasantness, or whatever residue there is of the mental state or emotion that I'm experiencing. And so whatever place I find myself on the continuum from initial unpleasantness to extreme rage, it's at that point, at whatever point. And, and the longer that I've gotten lost in the story and in the, in the emotional reactions to it, the more the need for compassion and mercy for how um, conditioned I am, conditioned we are to... Uh, misplacing our, the blame for our unhappiness on, on others and on situations, on experiences, on objects. And we've been practicing this projection for, from beginningless time. It, the, it's what the Buddha talked about. 
Yet, it is through the purification of our view, through seeing aversion as aversion, seeing all the hindrances as hindrances, learning how to work with them, learning how to expand our view, even just to expand my view by hearing what it's like for my friend Margot in Afghanistan. Just a little widening of the lens. Put whatever my... I don't want to call them petty irritations, but yeah, relatively speaking, petty irritations, bourgeois irritations, privileged irritations, put them in perspective. That we just have no clue how uh, comfortable, as just in general, culturally we are. And until we're able to, to have a little bit wider perspective... Uh, we just keep spinning around in that little vortex. So we need to forgive ourselves for whatever um, whatever our conditioning is and whatever harm we have caused ourselves or others through our our reactivity and through these hindrances as they they play in our minds and begin that slow process of using them for the purpose of awakening. Use them to open our hearts. Use them to help bring us to attention. Uh, To appreciate that everyone uh, experiences unpleasant. And when we see someone getting really angry and frustrated, our heart goes out to them because we know that we do that. We know how painful it is to have our well-being dependent on conditions being a certain way. It's so painful to be at, at the, at the um, effect of, of conditions. So rather than get angry at angry people, we should love them up. Getting angry at ourselves for being angry, we should love ourselves up. But we tend to, we tend to avoid anyone that triggers that unpleasantness in our hearts, anybody who triggers those, those difficult feelings. It's not fun to feel angry, frustrated, agitated, needy. It's really unpleasant to feel it. And it's unpleasant to be around others who experience that. But it's because it's disowned in ourselves that it's so difficult to be around others. So we try to get to know all of the states, all the defilements as they present themselves in our own hearts. And we, in that process, we widen our circle of love, compassion, understanding. We purify our view. We see that, that our dukkha, our, our mental suffering, is not so much caused by it, whatever situation. It's caused by our chronic uh, reactions to things, our chronic wanting what we don't have and not wanting what we do have. And we let our practice be uh, an inspiration to see if I can find my composure with things as they are. I can, and I can see if I can develop a little equanimity toward policemen, toward politicians, See if I can remind myself that things 
are the way they are, whether I like it or not. Any of you think about these things? I I think this is relevant to all of our lives because we're we're not necessarily going to so easily change the world. But we, I think we can change our relationship to the world. And in that way, we, we start to model freedom instead of model uh, more anger. And then become, we can become activists, but we don't want to be angry activists. We want to be, as Bo Lozov says, we want to be nomads. I know mad at you, you know mad at me. <laughs> but we can't be too idealistic. We have to accept the fact that we're, we don't want to impose such ideals of being these perfect saints and then have aversion to our own uh, imperfections. We want to have a sense of humor about our our hindrances, the fact that we are, m- many of our days are just one multiple hindrance attack after another. The anonymous poem that I often read as a, um, as a protection from comparing ourselves negatively to impossible ideals, I'll share again tonight. It's entitled Inner Strength. If you can start the day without caffeine or stimulants, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and conceit, deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, you're probably the family dog. We must uh, widen our view. Otherwise, we lose our sense of humor. We lose perspective. That's why we always want to go from the... We don't want to, as Rumi says, you don't want to stay in prison when the door is so wide open. Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Just open. Open to things the way they are. I'll end with the words of Nisargadatta where he says, and this is working with the pleasant and the unpleasant, pleasure and pain. As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also need things to be a certain way, we'll say. As long as we believe that we need things to be a certain way to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. <laughs> 
real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of meditation is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, open, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness, in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. We can only discover this if we let go, if we see our mind for what it is, we see our hindrances, we come out of the tangle and live in silence, using the hindrances themselves to remind us of that ever-present openness and clarity. Being able to say, oh, this is aversion, this is This is exceedingly pleasurable, but not clinging. This is the mind of emptiness, of openness. So may all beings realize the wide circle of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be able to work with the hindrances with equanimity, understanding. And if there's been any benefit to us uh, being together, we share it with that wide circle of beings, Afghanis, beings of all countries and all circumstances, those who are being born, those who are dying, those who are really suffering, and those who are having great good fortune and pleasure. Let the circle of our goodwill, the blessings and benefits of our lives and our practice touch all beings without exception. Expressed with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness and peace, safety and protection, health and strength, that all beings can be, have peace and ease of well-being. And all beings be free on all levels. May all beings be liberated. Okay, please uh, be patient for a few moments. I have a few announcements. For the next three Tuesday evenings, I will be absent. Next week, I begin a retreat at Spirit Rock, and then I'm taking off a couple weeks at the end of the year. But you will be graced with the presence of Yvonne Ginsberg for three weeks in a row. And she's, she has a great sense of the seasons and uh, this time of year. She's been probably the person for probably 10 years who's done the 
the end of the year evenings, and I think you'll love being with you, with her if you haven't been with her before. She really has a great sense of of how to be in this time of year, and will help you navigate the stresses of Christmas and the pleasures of Christmas and uh, the new year. I'm sorry to say that I won't be here for the end of the 100-day retreat, which is on January 1st, but I want to remind those of you who've forgotten that you <laughs> committed to 100 days that you are now <laughs> that you are now 75 days into your 100 days and I congratulate all of you for making it or not making it up to this point. But really deep appreciation for any of you who have who have used this time to widen your practice in some form or another and highly recommend that you really practice with gusto for these last 25 days and and begin anew with uh, the new year, just reflecting on the fruit of what you've done and, and planting new seeds. And I'll be here on January 3rd, January 3rd, and we can talk about the next, uh, the next step. But uh, please support the group, support Yvonne in the next three weeks, be generous, and uh, enjoy your holiday season. Second announcement, uh, the room rental, as usual, is $150 a week, $600 a month. And so we need your help for the room rental, and, and you can make it a practice of generosity in many forms. PayPal, a check to the church is tax deductible. Uh, put Mission Dharma on the memo line. Cash is fine, all in the basket. And whoever takes the seat here, we offer it freely, and the invitation for you is to practice your form of generosity in the form of support also in the baskets. So thank you for all of your support this year and in advance for tonight, and uh, thanks for your practice. And then one final message for all of you. Last week we blessed Tanya and her pregnancy. That evening she went into labor, and she now has a baby girl, healthy, happy at home. Name is Nora, I think. Anyway, so I think she would want to extend a thank you to all of you for, for shepherding in her little baby Nora into this world. So thanks for that, and uh, hope you all have a great holiday season. And thank you for everything. Love you all. Still have that Casio watch. Yours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.